get into our study tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Proverbs chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can get one in your hand in 16th chapter. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to go a little faster, uh, not, not in pace the way I'm going to teach it, but in the fact that I'm not going to cover every single verse. The reason is we've gotten to the 15th uh, chapter. Uh, Proverbs has certain themes that are throughout the 31 chapters, and those themes are revisited. So we will touch on them, but if we're, we've uh, really kind of uh, drilled down deeper on some of those themes, we will move past those and look at some of the other themes that we've not kind of touched on with the same amount of depth. So hopefully that makes sense, and so we may even do some nights two chapters, uh, and as we move our way through, we're getting to the end of Ephesians, uh, and you know we're about halfway through the Proverbs, so... It'll just allow us to cover more of the scriptures till Jesus returns. Amen? Proverbs 16, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3 to start with, um, starting with verse 1. The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege to open your word. Thank you for giving me the privilege to teach it, to preach it, to share it. Lord, may we all be strengthened by it. Jesus, we pray your Holy Spirit would now just uh, comfort us, convict us, give us rest here tonight. Whatever each person needs, you know, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So we look at verse 1 here, the preparations of the heart, preparations of of the heart. Where's our heart? I mean, you, you, you really think about if God's looking and saying, Tim, where's your heart? So-and-so, where's your heart? Whoever you are, where are we really at? Remember in the garden, God says, Adam, you know, where are you? Adam knew where he was. And by the way, God knew where Adam was too, right? So this is not uh, that God would, I wonder where he is, you know. He knows where he is. But the question that God asks us is, where's our heart, right? He speaks to us in that way. Where, where is your heart? What are our desires? What are our motivations? What gets, keeps us moving in life? What are our priorities? These all flow from where? <clears throat> they flow from our heart, our spiritual heart. <clears throat> now, the natural state of our heart is not a good scene. Did you know that? The natural state of our heart is just not a good thing. In Jeremiah 17, 9, you've probably heard this verse a number of times, at least from me, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? It'd be bad news if it ended there, wouldn't it? This is, the heart's in bad shape. I mean, uh, you say, how could someone commit this kind of crime or do this kind of thing? And the reality is all of us are capable of that. We don't maybe not think that way, but there, we are. Also in, uh, also in Jeremiah, 414 says, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? God says, look, your heart is producing just this evil that's actually uh, embedded in your minds. Jesus said, it's what in a man that defiles him, right? And it wasn't the outside stuff. Remember, they were really big on... Uh, yeah, keeping the letter of the law and the foods that came in. And Jesus said, that's not the stuff that defiles you. It's what's already in you that defiles you. 
Yes, the Levitical law and those things were given to Israel for specific reasons, but Jesus said that that's not the stuff that it's about. It's the sin nature in your heart. It's in our hearts. But when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, when we surrender our hearts in repentance to the life-giving blood of Jesus, he changes our hearts. He takes the heart of stone out. He puts in the heart of flesh. Post-salvation, post-salvation. This is really important. It only works post-salvation. You couldn't try this with someone saying, oh, I'm not born again. Let me try exactly this. It wouldn't work. But post-salvation, our hearts can choose to die daily. Isn't that true? Our hearts can choose to die daily to the will and the righteousness of God. Before I was saved, I didn't care much about the will of God. Did you? I didn't care much about the righteousness of God. Now, I didn't want people to commit crimes against me, which, by the way, would be sin. But other than that, as long as you kept my insulated, perfect world my way, I was fine. And I didn't really care what God was looking for in my life and the righteousness of God. But then when you're born again, God changes all that. We can, by grace and the Spirit, now guard our hearts that God is renewed. Now, make sure we understand that connection. God's renewed the heart. We're now called to guard the heart, right? We're the, we're the watchman on the wall for our own hearts. Now, even that being said, it's still always grace. Did you know that? It's still always grace. I love this passage. It ministered to me when I was first saved and, and ever since Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. Isn't it great that really at the end of the day, even when we're trying to guard our hearts, guess who kept us from stumbling today? Jesus. Guess who got you here tonight even though you might have wanted to get here tonight? Jesus. Guess who will get you all the way to the end of your journey, Jesus. It's by grace. And yet by that same grace, he's given us a task, he's given us a command to faithfully keep our hearts in tune with his. That's, that's not, it's not an A, B, or C. He simply says, here's the deal. I've saved you. Now I want you to keep your heart in tune with mine. Just as it's his grace that allows us to put food on the table, wouldn't you agree that's God's grace? Just as it's his grace that allows us to have a job, just as it's his grace to take another breath, it's his grace that allows a born-again believer to be a faithful steward of our hearts. Now, a steward, you might hear that term, uh, and every now and then I define things that I say that are Maybe too much Christianese and saying, well, everyone knows what that is, or maybe everyone doesn't. But a steward is someone who oversees the property of the estate of another. And if you think about our hearts and everything else about us, who does it all belong to? Jesus. He said, you were bought with a price. Now we are stewards of what God has given us. He says, I've given you a life. I've given you lung, breath in your lungs. I've given you a task to do. I've made you a steward. Now you need, you need to be faithful in guarding your heart. But the heart, that's where it all starts. That's where it starts, and that's where we have to go back to again and again. You see the title of uh, my text tonight, First Things First. 
You see, stewards aren't perfect. Stewards aren't perfect. There's no perfect stewards here that have guarded their heart perfectly, never let a ray or, or just even a, a seeping of anything that shouldn't come in. And that stewards aren't perfect. But stewards are called to be faithful and diligent. And sometimes all stewards, we have to retrace our steps, don't we? Sometimes we have to retrace our steps and go back to say, where did this get off track? In Proverbs 4.23, back in the fourth chapter, it says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. See, when your heart's right, the other things will follow. When the heart's in the wrong place, life gets out of whack. All kinds of things get out of line. We're no longer in the will of God, and we could even fall and get into all kinds of other sin and rebellion. But our heart will be reflected in our lives but also in our words, what comes out of our mouth. If Christ is renewing our hearts, it'll transform and protect our tongues. Look what it says. It says, the preparation of the heart belong to man. So there has a, God's given us this responsibility to prepare our hearts. We say that before things like the Lord's Supper. You ever heard pastors say that? Let's all prepare our hearts. Okay, well, that, is that a cliche? No, it's, well, it can be, but it actually is something we see right here. The preparation of the heart. The Lord says, I've given you the responsibility to prepare your heart. Someone else can't prepare your heart for you. The person sitting next to you cannot prepare your heart. They can only prepare their heart. I can only prepare my heart. So I prepare my heart, then my tongue will follow. If my heart is right with the Lord, then the tongue will follow. And that's what he says. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The Lord will start to speak by the Spirit into our heart, and what starts to come out. Remember when you're unsaved, the things used to come out of the mouth? You know, don't, don't think too long on that, right? Because a lot of things might, we're not trying to take you way back in time. But um, over time, the Lord, the longer we walk with the Lord, our tongue begins to reflect. We start to talk more like Jesus. If Pastor Chuck Smith, years ago, um, there was a time where he decided that he was only going to answer people. They wouldn't know it. I don't know how long he did this, but I remember uh, him talking about this. But he was, uh, I don't know how long he did it, but he was only going to answer people with scriptures. Now, they wouldn't necessarily, you could talk, do you know you could talk to a cashier and say a scripture, and they wouldn't necessarily know, especially from things like Proverbs. They would think, oh, okay, that was, that was uh, right? He said, you know, uh, be blessed and kept. All right, that's from numbers. But they can be small little things. And so he would do that. And he was just saying, you know, he was practicing speaking words that actually were giving life or actually speaking truth into people's lives at every place that he would go. And that's something that we certainly can practice. And and that's that's the kind of things that please the Lord because he wants the things that we dwell on and meditate actually change the content of art. And then, of course, it comes out of our mouth. If Christ is renewing our hearts, it'll transform our tongues, but it'll also protect our tongues, won't it? It'll keep us from saying things that we otherwise would really regret, that we shouldn't say, or that uh, will cause issues down the line. Let's look at verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. I won't take long on this, but because uh, we do want to move through the text and, and cover a lot of this. But I'll say this. God sees the hidden things we can't see. Isn't that true? He sees the things we cannot see. 
the Lord weighs us, but he also weighs our intentions. And that goes back to as we're preparing. God will alter the things that we're preparing because he'll see things we don't see. Uh, God has intervened in my thought process or the way I'm kind of uh, kind of categorizing things many times. That no, I shift this to here and this to here. That's what God does. He sees, uh, he weighs the spirits and says, hey, your, your heart's in the right place, but I actually want you to focus over here. Parents, we have to do that sometimes with kids, right? Heart's in the right place. I know you want to help mom right now, but right now this is going to make the job 10 times longer. So why don't you go over here, right? That's what God will do with us. He redirects us, but again, he's going to weigh our hearts and our motives. Let's look at uh, verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. And that's interesting. You might say, well, shouldn't it be commit my thoughts and the works would be established? But he says, commit your works, and your thoughts will be established. Now, it's connected back with verse 1. If you've given your life to Christ, if I've given my life to Christ, I would suspect that you want to do right. I would suspect if you're here tonight, you give your life to the Lord, you want to do things that are right and pleasing to the Lord. I know I do. Doesn't, doesn't mean I always succeed, but I know that that's what my desire is. And we may really want to please God, and if that's the case, guess what? If we really want to please God, he's told us how to do it. Wouldn't you agree? He's told us how to do it. We have his word. We've been told what to do. At some point, we have to resign ourselves to doing the things that Christ has commanded. And, you know, we know what, we need to have a prayer life. We need to get into the Word. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be generous givers. We need to learn to love one another. We need to learn to over, uh, overlook people's faults and failures and, and love covers a multitude of sins. We need to fellowship together. We need to worship all of these things. And, and they're really all connected. And the longer you walk with Jesus, you're not like trying to juggle and they just start to flow naturally in your life. Amen? It's a work of the Spirit. And we don't have to worry. If he's commanded it, he'll help us keep it and complete it. Isn't that true? If he's commanded it, he'll help us keep it and complete it. What a relief if we're afraid of failure. He'll help us keep it. If he says, get out of the boat, you'll be able to walk on water. You will. Peter found out that was true. Then he started to like, say, oh, uh, this, this is not possible. Down he goes. But if Jesus bids us, hey, do this, I'll take care of it. Write that letter to that loved one. I want you to write it after all. It's coming up near the holidays. Tell them you've been thinking about it. Tell them you've been praying. Well, what if they don't receive it well? I'll take care of the results. That's what God does. He takes care of the results. But he says, commit your works and your thoughts will be established. In other words, when we take that step of faith, where there is faith, there will be commitment. Faith and commitment go hand in hand. Think about it like this. If you believe gas is important to your car running, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because if you're here, I'm positive you believe gasoline is important to your car running. It's not the only thing related to your car running, but it's the thing that you do most often related to your car running, other than putting the key in the ignition. If you believe gas is important to you keep your car running, you'll find a way to get to the gas station 
even when it's not convenient. Right? Oh, man, i got to take a U-turn. Why did they put a left turn here? Why did they not divide the... You ever, you ever talk this way? What were they thinking? Did they not think about me when I would be driving? That I would be going down the highway? Did they not know that I would need a Sheets or a Wawa there? Not there, there. No matter how inconvenient it is, your faith and belief that gasoline is important will make you prioritize and go get it, even if it's not convenient, if it's 11 o'clock at night, if you didn't want to stop, if it's cold, if it's hot, doesn't matter. You're on empty, you're stopping. Because the alternative isn't a good option, is it? Calling AAA, sitting on the side of the road, is way more inconvenient. But commitment, it always brings action, doesn't it? It's related to faith. Faith and commitment, they go together. But it not only brings action, here's the best part. It also brings fruit. Because when you get gas in the car, you actually get to get the other things done, like bring food home that everybody likes to eat. Start serving Christ, and then we'll not only see the action in our life, but we'll see the fruit of experience, our, our failures, our fears, our misgivings, and our doubts. We're called to just step forward. And in doing so, our thoughts become established. I love, I love the word here. It doesn't say that our thoughts will become fluid. It doesn't say our thoughts will become off and on. It says established, right? When you think of something established, how many of you like to use an insurance company that's not established? You like to use things, I like to use things that are not established at all. Banks that aren't established, insurance companies that aren't established, doctors that aren't established. God says, when you take steps of faith and commitment, your thoughts will be established. You will not, your mind won't race in every direction forever. That's a good, that's a good fruit, isn't it? In doing so, our thoughts become established and firm. You know, Jesus did not worry, and he was not just floating in all different directions, blown by the wind. His thoughts were established. He set his face like a flint. In doing so, we develop, develop. Remember, salvation is different than sanctification. Salvation, you're born again. Sanctification, it's that wringing out of the old man out of us, and that takes some time, doesn't it? So our thoughts... You may be more established now than you used to be, but you can actually still become more established in the future than you are today. Same as me. We can all become more established in the mind of Christ. If you're still alive, we all have room to think more like Jesus, to be less worrisome, to be less afraid, to be less pensive, to be less bothered, to be less stressed out, to be less lustful, or whatever it is that, that, that is invading your mind will develop the mind of Christ. There's always room. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 2.16. But there's more. Look at verse 20 and 21 because we're doing a little different. We're going through the whole chapter. Uh, pop over to verse 20 and 21. I know I didn't read them, but I will now. He who heeds the word wisely, verse 20, same chapter, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. That sounds like a good deal. Happy? You mean I don't need a movie? I don't need a 
six-hour comedy binge? No, it says, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. Do you like good? Good deals, good bargains, good people, good food. He who heeds the word wisely will find good. Whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Happiness is knowing Jesus and walking with him. You can try everything else in this world, and people have tried them all and can't find happiness. The wise in heart, verse 21, will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increases learning. Um, the, for, uh, the CEO of the company I used to work for, I, I, I don't quote the business world that often, but every now and then, that they'll, uh, he, he just came out with a new book. I think it's called Hit Refresh or whatever. Um, but he talks about not being a know-it-all, but a learn-it-all. And that's, that's definitely the way every believer should be. We should be a learn-it-all from Jesus, though. And the more we learn from Jesus, more sweetness is on our lips. The happier in the Lord, I'm not talking about circumstances, because circumstances will still be a mess. Cancer will still be real. Your car getting hit will still be real. Uh, you know, a demotion, all these kind of things. All, life still is tough, but you can still be happy in the Lord, in the storms. And that's an important uh, fruit that we would get only by committing our ways to him. Moving on, let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 seems to have no direct relation to the first three verses, and, and Proverbs kind of moves like that, but there actually is a connection more than it might first meet the eye, but let's take a look at it. Solomon takes what I would say is a hard turn here. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. There's a fun verse. Verse 5, uh, everyone proud in heart is an abomination of the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. So two kind of rough verses in a row there. Neither one of them happy, cheery uh, text that we're looking at. But Solomon takes a hard turn here for an important reason. Sadly, not every heart, we're talking about the heart here tonight, not every heart will submit to the Lord. Jesus makes that clear. There will be a dividing at the end of sheep and goats. There's not everyone is going to turn to Jesus. Not everyone's going to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Some are going to resist. God in his desired will, we've talked a lot about that throughout the year, God in his desired will is not willing that any should perish. I hope we all understand that. But his permissive will, in other words, what he permits, free will, he gives free will, he permits a choice. Um, in his permissive will, some are not willing to come to God and be changed. You've witnessed to people in your life that you, you pray earnestly that they would come to the Lord. You know they'd be ten times happier, right? You know they'd have more joy. You know that some of the problems that they complain about would actually clear up because you know they're self-inflicted. You know it's not God saying, I want to make their life miserable. They're making their life miserable. Now, I'm not talking about things that, uh, that people can't avoid, like earthquakes and tsunamis and cancer. I'm talking about the life choices that um, are really 
ones that people say, I'm going to do this whether anyone likes it or not, including God. But God, the love of God, it warns, just like a parent, all of your parents, you've all done this. We have, we've had three girls raised. Every parent has to warn their kids not to touch the stove. That'll never change. It won't change now. It won't change 100 years from now. You, you do not want a little hand reaching up and grabbing a hot stove. And it's hap it happens all across America every year. Kids get incredibly bad burns. They rush the emergency room. It'll never stop that you have to warn, warn, warn. Say, do I only have to warn once? No. Many more times, right? Because there's... A serious burn, if, if you even touch it, much less grab and, and, and grab a whole handful. But God warns in love that there's a penalty for refusing his grace. There really is a judgment coming for every individual, for every nation, for the whole world. And even that dreadful day, and it is a dreadful day. You read, you read about the judgment of the Lord throughout the Bible. It's frightening even to the writers that had to write it. They didn't want to look at it either. But even that dreadful day, did you know that even the dreadful day of the judgment of the Lord will bring glory to God? I don't understand all of that, but it does. It'll bring glory to Him. His holiness and His sovereignty will be exalted even in judgment. Uh, I think it was Oswald Chambers. I, it, I was, not Oswald, but I, don't quote me if it was him. Internet, don't quote me if it was him. But anyway. Uh, I can't remember what I was reading, but he's talking about the fact that um, in our arrogance, it's our arrogance that actually questions how God could judge. But the more we become like Jesus, we don't question it. We actually see in the book of Revelation, the saints rejoice when the smoke ascends up from Mystery Babylon. The saints rejoice. Why? Because they've now come into full fellowship with God, and they see things from God's perspective. Now, that's here and now. Our only responsibility is to get the word out of the warning. Don't touch the stove, if you will, in the, in the way of, please come to the Lord. Now, verse 5 speaks of pride. Everyone, of, everyone uh, proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates pride. Pride was what uh, you know, Lucifer originally, who later has other names in the Bible, the devil, Satan. It was pride that was the beginning of all the sin. Pride is at the core of all sin and, and in the final judgment. C.S. Lewis says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride. And by the way, it can still uh, rear its head in us Christians too, can it? And God still hates it and wants it out of our life. D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those that are full of themselves. God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. The more humble we become, the more grace we receive. Not the grace that saves, but the grace that grows us. Grace that protects us. The grace that uh, really sanctifies us. The proud, the proud don't need God. Well, they do, but they don't think they need God. That unbelief and that self-made theology is the essence of pride. And all pride and unbelief and rebellion will be judged. Look at verses 18 and 19, same chapter. Jump over to verse 18. We have more about this in the same chapter. 
Verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You ever met someone with a haughty spirit? I mean, before they've even, before they've even told much about what it is they're going to talk about, it's, it's kind of oozing and you're already cringing and looking for an exit door. And I'm like, do I have to endure 30 minutes of this pontification of their greatness? Right? It's wearisome to everybody else. But the pride, pompous person thinks everyone is enjoying their company. But pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit. God hates a haughty spirit. We can't have an haughty spirit. No, we don't want a fake, pious spirit either, which is just another form of pride. Be genuine. Be authentic. But be humble. Be normal while you're humble. Humble. It's a fine line between normal and humble, isn't it? But he goes on in verse 19, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than divide the spoil with the proud. God says a humble spirit, a genuine, authentic spirit, a Christ-like spirit, you're better off with that than riches or anything else, which won't help you in the end no matter what. Look at, look at verse 6. We move on. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. You might want to underline uh, the first half of that. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. What does that sound like? Atonement for iniquity. In mercy and truth. Well, we know who came in mercy and truth and provided atonement for iniquity is sure, here's the thing, brother and sister, as sure as the final judgment is coming, and it's sure coming, just as sure as there's 24 hours in a day, just as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow and the moon is going to still be in its place, just as sure as these things of judgment in the future, we also have the surety of the mercy and truth of Jesus and his atoning blood running parallel. And his blood is just as certainly ready and available now. That's the gospel right there in Proverbs. The gospel's in Proverbs. You know, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he opened the scriptures and he told them all things that pertain to him. This is likely one of the verses that he would have said, now, by the way, you ever read Proverbs chapter 16? I'm not saying that Jesus said this, but had he pointed to the 16th chapter, he would have shown him this, or he could have shown him this, and I'm sure other verses that, I, that have gone over my head that he said, oh, he missed that one, that was about me too. But this is the gospel, that Jesus has taken our place. Atonement is provided for, and in exchange of iniquity. Iniquity is on this side, atonement, we swap places. Why? Because Jesus takes that place. The belief Understand here, he says uh, uh, in the latter half of the verse, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. See, the belief that judgment, the scriptures say, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So if someone says, hey, before I was saved, I was beating my spouse. Guess what stops happening after salvation? No more beating the spouse. Instead, you'd be washing the feet 
spiritually speaking. That would end. But before I was saved, I cussed like a sailor. Guess what happens after salvation? No more cussing like a sailor. Sorry if you're sailors. I don't even know where that cliche came from, but I know it's been around a long time. Blame the pirates. I don't know who, who came up with it. The Navy. No, maybe not the Navy. The pirates. We'll blame them. But, but at the end of the day, the scriptures make it clear that if someone's really been changed, there is a change. The evidence of Christ changing a person is the changed life. There's a 180 in life. It says here, the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Once that atonement has been received and that iniquity has been covered by the blood of Jesus, there's going to be a turning from sin. If someone says, well, I'm still living with so-and-so, we're not married, uh, we just gave our lives to Jesus, well, it's time to change that. No, no, we, we, we like it this way. Well, is there really a change? The belief that judgment is certain and deserved, by the way. When, you know, when I got saved, I'd say, well, I actually deserve what the Scripture is saying. The belief that judgment is certain and deserved, followed by a real cry for mercy and forgiveness, will never be refused and will always bring change and repentance. It won't be refused. Jesus is never going to refuse someone who truly repents. Isn't that great to know? Come to me, he says. Come. He's not going to resist a person that really comes in sincerity, look at verse 17. It says, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. See, once our salvation is genuine, our soul is preserved. We know what a preservative is, right? Something that preserves, something that keeps. We're kept by a genuine salvation. We're kept by a real heart change. Anyone's in Christ, he's new creation. And then we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But the evidence of that is that we depart from evil. And not just evil. Well, that's the really bad stuff. We more and more depart from just things that get in the way of the will of God in our life. Not just the evil stuff, the really bad stuff, the really dark stuff. No, but also the things that are the sins and the weights, as Hebrews talks about. When a person truly believes they have a serious health issue, if they really believe they have a serious health issue, they'll go to a doctor's office. It may take them a while. Men, it always takes us longer to get there than women. But nevertheless, eventually, we finally come to the conclusion it's time to go. If you believe it's serious, you'll get to the doctor's office, and you'll likely, if you really believe the issue is real, the doctors may identify, you'll follow the instructions. And when a person truly believes they have a serious sin and eternity issue, they'll come to the great physician, won't they? And they'll follow his instructions. For salvation first, you know, we all follow Jesus' instructions for us to come into that relationship. But now he follows the instructions post-salvation as his commands to servants in our sanctification. That's what we're talking about here tonight. Look at verse 7, and, uh, 7, 8, and 9. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You've got to love verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace. But then he talks about this contentment in verse 8, and then in verse 9, that the Lord will direct our steps. And we'll just be brief on this, as we've touched on these things as well in previous chapters. But the more our ways, what is our ways? Well, our ways are our heart and our motives. The more our heart and motives please the Lord, think about it. 
brother and sister, the more we'll see is peace. But, and by the way, it doesn't happen always on the exact timeline we want, but hold on tight, it's coming. More peace, more of his provision. Doesn't always mean that you're going to get you know, rich and your ship's going to come in. But what you need, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, what you need. And then lastly, his path becomes more and more clear. We really understand, Lord, I'm walking in the way you want me to walk. I'm giving wisdom in my marriage, wisdom in how to raise our children, wisdom in decisions I'm making at work, peace with those decisions. And, Lord, we have what we need. Not all what we want, because if our heart's right, God will make it clear, hey, hey, by the way, that's a want. There's something me and my wife we were just talking about today. We were, uh, um, some plans we had made, and, and, and the plans have been all shot up. You ever had that? You make plans, and they completely go awry. And it's not that you start to think about it and say, we had, and, and they were good reasons, and, and they were going to be helpful to us. And, it's, and, and the more we thought about it, say, we don't deserve this, 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 or this. These aren't a big deal. And then after we start thinking through them, the Lord's like, now you're, now, you, you're better off with my plan, better off your plans kind of getting messed up and you having peace than you doing your plans and not having peace. Isn't that true? So that's the way the Lord works. He said, when your ways please me, I'll make, take care of the path, I'll take care of the peace, I'll take care of the provision. Look at verses 10 through 16. I'm going to read fast on these. I'm going to lump them together, but let's uh, start with verse 10. Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. Honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Capital H-I-S, by the way. You can see that um, the Lord uh, doesn't deal with imbalance. Everything is impartial. Verse um, Verse 12, it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. Of course, we see kings commit wickedness all through history and, and today. For a throne is established by righteousness. You say, well, I, I've seen a lot of unrighteous thrones. Yes, we'll get to that. Uh, righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. That's certainly what we would want all kings uh, or those that have um, authority to to speak in that manner. Verse 14, as messengers of death is the king's wrath, um, but a wise man will appease it. Verse 15, in the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like the cloud of the latter rain. Verse 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is chosen rather than silver. So take all these verses together. Um, I'll put it in these terms. God has ordained leadership. God's ordained leadership. But those that have leadership positions have an extraordinary responsibility, whether they know it or not. Everyone, the higher you go up in leadership, they have an extraordinary responsibility to reflect the character of God with the authority and leadership they've been entrusted with. Now, in the church, the Bible says that pastors we will endure a stricter judgment in the presence of the Lord because we'll be called to higher standard. Moses, one smite of the rock, no promised land. Seems, you, know, you ever read that scene, seems a little bit unfair? You're like, hold on a second. Now, I, you understand that there's a typology that you, price is not 
uh, struck twice as the rock, and I, I, I understand the typology. Is the, but still, the first time I read it as, as a new believer, I'm like, what gives? This guy is pretty faithful to me. You know, I, mean, I don't understand this. You ever felt that way? You're like, man, he's dealt with all that, and you know, who doesn't lose their temper every now and then? You know, that kind of thing. But God hold the higher you go up in leadership, the more accountable. And God says, kings, this you were supposed to reflect the king of kings. But most kings, in fact, do not reflect the king of kings. Most leaders don't reflect. Most leaders are really high on themselves. But God gives great responsibility. How much, how much we really need leaders that are lovers of truth, that are merciful, but also are just. Wouldn't that be great? We have more leaders like that, politician leaders, business leaders. And look at verse 14. Notice verse 14, kind of interesting. Um, we're called to be peacemakers. We're also called to be the salt of the earth. This doesn't just, um, uh, just doesn't apply to, you know, God might have put you in your workplace to calm your nutty boss down, right? Let's see, what, let's see what, how this works. Verse 14, as messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. I remember when I was in the business world, at times, talking some of leaders above me off the ledge a little bit to say, you know, that seems a little harsh. Why? If you can build, you as brothers and sisters, God's given you wisdom. Daniel did this great. He was able to move into places and speak to kings and say, what if we tried this? I was thinking about firing everybody. What if we didn't fire everybody today and instead gave them a little more work-life balance, right? You know, something like that. So, you know, just understand that wisdom, it, it, when you're dealing with leaders, God, you may not be the leader, but you can actually influence leaders. It's called, in the business world, they call it managing up. But God wants to give us wisdom in these matters. Verse 26, since we've already covered some of these other ones, drop down to 26. We're on the home stretch here. The person who labors, labors for himself, for his hungry mouth drives him on. Well, that's self-explanatory, but here's what it comes down to. Uh, in this world, God's given every single person personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. It's like your hunger will drive you. Uh, our own knowledge of where our need is should drive us personally to the Lord but we all have personal responsibility. And by the way, when everyone takes personal responsibility, every unit's stronger. Families are stronger. Teams are stronger. Churches are stronger when everyone takes some personal responsibility. In other words, each person guards their own heart. Because I said at the outset, we can't guard each other's. Although we influence, we encourage each other's hearts, but I can't make a decision for another person. Except for it's my kids. Then I can make it. In certain areas, I, no, no, I did made, made the decision for you. No, this is what we're doing. Verse 27. Uh, 27 through 30, actually. 27 through 30, an ungodly man digs up evil, is on his lips like a burning fire, a perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Sad situation there, huh? The, the influence of gossip. Verse 29, a violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He winks his eye to devise perverse things. He purses his lips and brings about evil. The good news is we're going to finish on a high note with the last three verses. But let's take a look at these for just a second. Um, 
verse 27 through 30, we, we see these are just different manifestations of a life led in the flesh. Uh, the first man, uh, their lips are like a burning fire. Could be just a foul mouth. Uh, could be the kind of jokes that you know that you hear that uh, no Christian should ever be repeating. Uh, you've got uh, verse 28. You've got slander and gossip and all, all the issues that that uh, produces. Uh, you've got people that just lead other people into sin. Verse 29. Uh, he who winks in his eye to devise first thing. The longer people walk in sin, the more they think about sin, they start devising. And you ever seen things like, a, you, you, you're watching a program or something, and a commercial comes on, you think, who in the world came up with this? Like, who sat in a room with the marketing department and said, this would make a great commercial? Because my, my, my wife and I are thinking, you know, sometimes, can we not have any channels that they haven't completely disrupted and destroyed with even, let's say, we found a good show, but now the commercials, because they devise and they think uh, sin becomes normative after a while. It's like the proverbial frog in the, in the, in the uh, boiling pot. You just, the water gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and that's what we see. But um, the pride of life that John talks about, the pride of life and the lust of the flesh, it just continues to be, uh, you know, like you break a jar of liquid and it just goes everywhere. It just is pervasive. The pride of life and the lust of the flesh, it destroys like a fire, verse 27. It uh, destroys relationships, verse 28. It multiplies evil in the next two verses. That's what it does. Destroys by fire, destroys relationship, multiplies evil. And if you've seen people that uh, you know that they know the truth of the gospel and they reject it, over time you'll see all of these things play out. You'll see all of it. You'll see the backstabbing. You'll see the relationships. You'll see the destroyed lives. You'll see the anger. You'll see kids torn in every different direction. It all happens exactly where the Scriptures says. Now, let's finish with verse 31 through 33. And I think we get to finish on a nice high note. Thank you, Solomon, for finishing us out this way. Verse 31, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory. Those of you that have silver hair, this is just for you. I got a little silver right going on here. When it grows out, it's a lot silver. I'm not allowed to grow a beard according to my wife because it's all silver. And if I didn't have gel, it would all be silver. Gel makes it look brownish, red, whatever it is. But uh, take away the gel and it's mostly silver. But the silver-haired head, so if you have all silver-haired here tonight, you're in great company. Uh, the silver-haired is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And I'm just kind of combining these three and looking at it from this picture. When you think about it, physical conditions, because we all were made up of mind, body, and spirit, right? So we're all physical bodies. We know they're changing, and usually the older, they're not changing for the good, but uh, they're changing. When you think about physical conditions and, and the comparison of two physical bodies, because people compare themselves to people all the time. Jesus said not to, and yet we do it anyway, don't we? We compare spirituality, we compare physical fit, we compare looks, all these things. Height, weight, you name it. 
And, uh, but when you think about the physical comparison versus the sin comparison, because everyone's a sinner, right? Everyone's a sinner, and everyone has a human body. Side by side, some look way better than other people in a sense of like, uh, well, if I put my sin next to your sin, I think that mine is way low and yours is way up here. But just like people that would compare people, you know, the, remember the original, you, you, you've watched Mark Zuckerberg, and the, the original use of Facebook there at Harvard was to actually, you know, kind of, this person looks great, this person looks lousy. Wonderful concept. That's how college guys think, by the way. So uh, just a, it's just a lovely idea, right, that we're going to actually compare human beings. These look good. Their face looks good. Their face not so good, something along those lines. And people compare themselves, but, you know, when God looks at two hearts that are unredeemed, we might say, well, this one's really bad because this guy, uh, tons, of, tons of crimes in prison, this person not so bad, but to God, not that same way. Just like if you look at myself next to someone who's seven foot four from the top of the Empire State Building, we don't look that different. And the farther you get out into space, we're actually non-existent, right? And the power and strength of people who think they're so strong and so this and so that, they have no more impact on the sun than someone who's 99, right? God looks at all, he says all Humans to him are like little ants, right? All like grass that's going to be burned up. And it's, it's not, we kind of like say, well, these super strong, great shape. That person could drop dead of a heart attack two minutes from now. All of these things, physical age, it may make us look physically weaker. And eventually it will make us physically weaker. There's no doubt about it. That history's proven that. But think about what this text is saying. Spiritual strength can actually become stronger and stronger and stronger with age. Spiritual faith can become mighty, but not only mighty, visible. Solomon used the metaphor that the gray hair is visibly seen, doesn't he? There's a silver hair. doesn't call it gray. He calls it silver. It's even better, right? That's like precious metal. Uh, so, and these are, these are reassuring things for those of you that are looking for real strength. Everyone in this room should want real strength. Real strength comes from God, not from Gold's Gym. Real strength comes from God. Someday physical strength will fail, but spiritual strength can actually get stronger and stronger and should get stronger with age. That's what John talks about, that, that you have the babes, you have the uh, newborn babies in Christ, you have the young men, and the fathers in the faith, the silver hair, the mothers in the faith. I read a blog recently, and I'll uh, wrap it up with this, but I... Um, read a blog recently, and it was a lady that uh, her uh, husband had died of cancer, and, and, and they kept visiting churches, and they grew so tired of going and seeing the laser light shows and uh, all of these young, super hip, incredibly in shape people and fit, and yet there was no word of God to comfort their hearts and souls as their husband's dying of cancer. And yes, it smelled like Starbucks in the air. And yes, there was all kinds of fun and everything and all this stuff. And yet none of it, all of that fountain, fake fountain of youth, if you will, with no real fountain of truth, wasn't really ministering. And they said what we really needed was someone just to teach the word of God. And that's what Solomon would say to all of us. Look, just walk in the ways of the Lord. 
share with people the living truth. And then as you, as you age in life, your gray hair should match your heart becoming mature. There should be a maturity uh, in that respect as well. Those of you that have walked with the Lord, you should have won battles that you can actually encourage someone else. Say, no, you can get through that battle. How do you know? Because I did it when I was 42. And then again when I was 56. You should have learned and be able to turn that a, No, no, a soft answer does turn away wrath. How do you know? Well, I'll give you this example, this example, this example, this example. A soft answer turns away wrath. And oh, by the way, more than just turn away wrath, it actually prevents a lot of unnecessary damage. You might not get fired after all. You would have seen God come through in things. Look at the last verse. says, but every decision from the Lord say, hey, God never fails. The decisions are his. Martin Luther said, it would be a good thing if young people were wise and old people were strong, but God has arranged things better. Isn't that great? He came to understand that the way God has it is that with age should come spiritual maturity, and if with age comes spiritual maturity, we're all better off for it. That we need Abrahams in this world, don't we? We need Moseses in this world. We need Pauls. We need Johns. We need Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's at, older and saying, hey, here's what you guys need to do, right? You shine, those of you that are aging in the Lord, you shine more than you think because he doesn't just call it silver hair. He calls it a crown of glory. Glory is usually a word reserved for God, but we are reflecting. We're the moon reflecting the sun. You can say so much with just the people that are really mature in the Lord, did you know that when you see someone who really knows the Lord and even walks with the Lord a lot of times, do you know that a lot of times they can speak without even saying a word, just a, a nod of the head, just a, a body language can be, can be a little warning, can be strong encouragement, can be compassion. You can see it in the eye. Real compassion that actually can melt someone right there and say, I've seen it. I've seen people that just... Uh, I've been with Sam doing this lots of times. His seasoning in the Lord. I've seen him just at a restaurant, just a waitress, just break down in tears, saying one little thing. But people are really looking for those that have won battles, that have walked the walk, that have fought the fight, that have believed in Jesus. Amen? And the reason that actually comes out true and authentic is you put first things first a long time ago and the content of your heart is like a prudent investment. It's worth more now than it was when you started. Amen?